let's transition from that, and uh, I have the privilege of introducing our speaker, Jeff Reinhardt. For those, whoo, that's right. For those of you not familiar with Jeff, um, he is the director of North America for Communitas International. So Communitas is an organization that we have been partnered with for, I think, the last nine years or so. And uh, we have been one of their kind of uh, affiliate or partner churches. Uh, We go to some of their functions. They provide leadership and oversight for our community. Uh, There's a lot of collaborative work that we've done uh, really throughout the world uh, that's been quite uh, exciting. Uh, Jeff is on that global advancement team for that organization, but then specifically he's kind of the lead Uh, catalyst for all of North America. So the initiatives within North America that we have partnered with, the initiatives in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, some really, really exciting stuff. I'll let him explain a little bit more of that. Uh, But he is here with his more than better half, Christy, who is out there. Christy, just wave. Yep. Um, And I'm excited for them to be here this morning for several reasons. One, I just love being with them. Uh, They are the kind of people that if you get to know them, there is a a deep richness into who they are that when they share that with you, you can't help but enjoy uh, the the effects of that life rubbing off on your own. Um, But also because I know Jeff has a a passionate heart for the church and a desire to mobilize the greater church to actually be passionate and live into all that God is calling you individually and us corporately to live into. So, would you uh, give him a slight round of applause as he comes? I don't want it to be too big. No, we do. A slight round. Yeah, I don't want it to be too big. That's good. That's good. No, that's perfect. <laughs> hey, good morning, Newcom. Wow, it is so great uh, to see a lot of friendly faces, familiar faces, and new faces. Um, Wow, what a privilege, you guys, uh, to be here. Um, You know, there's a lot for me to actually say with you today, so uh, buckle up. We'll be here till about three. Um, It's good. We're going to exegete most of John chapter 16, too, so it shouldn't take us very long at all. First of all, I wanted to give you just a quick update on, on a couple of things. Yeah, so, you know, Russ and I and Kevin and Julie, we've been just the dearest, bestest of best friends for uh, a number of years. In fact, I got connected to Russ the first time when um, Kevin was applying for a job at Newcom uh, from working with me at another church, and, uh, and Russ called me for a reference, and I really didn't want Kevin to leave, so I just told him how horrible Kevin was. Um, but apparently he didn't believe me. And uh, in the context of that long conversation, uh, we became just really good friends, even just over the phone. And, and seriously, it was like two hours we were talking on the phone. And at the end of that conversation, I, um, I said to him, uh, do you have any other openings at Newcom? Because that kind of sounds like the place where I'd like to um, be working. So it's cool that I'm speaking here, I don't know, nine years later or whatever it is. Um, so thank you for, for that. Uh, but also another way that you guys have been deeply engaged with me and our lives is not only through Communitas, which of course is, is absolutely wonderful. I'll give you a brief update on that in a moment too. Um, but also through Cairo Community Church, which you guys planted. Uh, I was on staff here for uh, a year 
six years ago now, seven years ago, it's been a while. Um, but you guys supported us in launching out in this community of faith in the Coeur d'Alene area, and it's just absolutely beautiful. Um, we've been through fits and starts. Um, I shared a couple of years ago, I think, on some of the places we've been as a community and, and where we have settled in. Uh, but let me just tell you that um, we're just in such a beautiful, growing place right now. Um, we have the privilege of meeting in a living room. Uh, so this format to me, the monologue format, is kind of quite different. Um, at least for the last number of years, we tend to be a lot more in dialogue. And uh, it's a beautiful place because uh, we find ourselves, firstly, because um, the bulk of us at Cairo are under 45. <laughs> it doesn't look like me. Cairo doesn't look like me. Uh, Cairo looks a lot more like a lot of you, actually. Um, but what that means is that there are a lot of people that are exploring what it means to be the church uh, in a lot of cases, what that looks like right now in our context is um, a certain level of deconstruction and reconstruction. Deconstructing maybe ways or images or thoughts or um, religious dogma, deconstructing a lot of things maybe that, um, that some of us grew up with uh, that we're now just asking some hard questions about and then reconstructing into a way that is truly seeking after the life and character and being of Christ and living out what that means um, in our context. So that is um, what we're doing at Cairo right now. And here, a, a, a community of people where it is as safe and as expected for me as the quote-unquote leader pastor to be in process as much as anyone else. And I got to tell you, that is the greatest gift anybody in leadership, especially in the church, can ever receive. So my encouragement to you as a community is embrace the leadership and allow them to be in process as much, if not more so, than you yourselves find yourselves. Um, it's an absolute great gift. I'll tell you this. We who um, find ourselves in leadership in the church, um, not all of us anymore, but many of us um, go to theological schools, we get seminary degrees, we do all of that. And, and I'll tell you what happens in the context of that. We come out of those experiences with a lot more questions than we went in with. See, you all think we go there and we get all the answers and then we get to put all of those on a shelf and now we know the right and the wrong. It's not true at all. The opposite is true. We come out wrestling um, so allow yourselves and allow leadership to wrestle along with you. Discipleship with Jesus is a lifelong process. Um, so we're in a beautiful and wonderful season at Cairo. Communitas. Communitas International, I came on their staff uh, in a uh, more formal way a couple of years ago. I oversee North America Advancement. Communitas is a 50-year-old church planning community development organization. Many of you are familiar with it. Um, Kevin was here, I don't know, eight, nine months ago and spoke um, here, so maybe you remember that. Um, but I can't tell you how exciting it is to be a part of a movement right now that is so full of life and growth. Um, so this is something we've been doing for 50 years, but we find ourselves in a season in North America where it's just, I'm just lucky. I'm just in the right place at the right time, um, doing the right kinds of things that all of a sudden our North American culture is saying, I want to be a part of that. 
So frankly, the last six months to a year, we haven't been able to keep up with the demand. We published a resource called the Dynamic Adventure. I think there's a, a picture of that um, up here. So uh, we published that book about a year and a half ago now, uh, really a guide. And uh, there are dozens and dozens of cohorts around the world that are going through this. It is a guide to um, missional church planting and community development. And uh, we're just getting a lot of, uh, of good feedback from that. It's available on Amazon if you're interested in taking a look at it. Or if you want to get into a cohort, that's great. Um, but within Communitas, there, there are a few key things that, that we're recognizing. The first is the who. Our goal in Communitas in North America is to equip the next generation of church leaders. Now, that doesn't necessarily just mean a generation, but in most cases, those are people under 45, not in all cases. Um, the next generation doesn't have to mean just an age group. It can mean a new way or the next way of being a community of faith. Um, how they're coming to want to do that is in all kinds of unique, beautiful expressions that don't necessarily look like what it looked like for our generation growing up. Um, it may be a group of people meeting in a living room. It may be a homeless shelter. It may be transitional housing. Um, it may be all kinds of things all over the world that are taking place. So we're seeing within Communitas a group of people that want to experience Christ in new, authentic, meaningful ways, but actually live that out in really tangible ways as well. Um, so what I can say to you uh, from all over the world, giving you some examples, locally, uh, Abigail is working on just an incredible housing initiative that we have a ton of momentum around, um, and she's doing that through Communitas and Cairo and new community here, so it's kind of a neat hybrid there. Ask her more about that. I know a lot of you have a heart for that, um, but those kinds of things are happening locally, and they're happening all around the world, um, and I will tell you as Paul um, as Jesus said when he was asked from John in prison, um, Jesus said, tell John that the lame walk and the blind see. And that is happening all over the world through Communitas. So thank you. Um, thank you for your support. We could not do it without the support of um, organizations like Newcom and individuals like you. I do think, and maybe some of you are sensing this too, I think we're on the precipice of a new reformation. I really do. Um, and I'll explain a little bit more about that in a moment. Um, but it is an exciting time to be a part of the body of Christ, even though it's awfully challenging as well. Um, so thank you, Newcom, for partnering with us. Here's what that's going to take for us to be um, active participants in the, new, the next reformation. It's going to take some of the things that, that Jesus calls us to be and calls us to do. It's going to take incredible patience. It takes patience because um, we're, we're in um, what many would call a liminal time, which means that we're in a transitional time. We have folks that are wanting to look back and grasp that and hold on to it and protect it for everything they're worth because they're afraid. So we can't look at our older brothers and sisters and be mad at them, but know what anything else might look like. That makes it complicated. So we're going to need a lot of patience with each other. We're going to need patience as we go through um, birth pains of vitriol and politics, of um, 
people having very strong opinions about certain old doctrinal things, that they want to be black and white, but Jesus actually tells us are gray. And what is the answer when we're in the gray is to have complete trust in him and Jesus. We're going to have to have patience for that. We're going to have to be overwhelmed with love for one another. One of the greatest commands in the Bible is to love one another. We are going to have to have a um, tremendous amount of unity. And when I say unity, that may make some of you feel a little uncomfortable right now because you're looking around and you're saying, where is it? Why isn't there more of it? How, how come it's so hard for us to have unity in the church? But when I say patience and love and unity, all of those are really elements of a very, very important concept in a critical character identifier of Christ himself. And that word is peace. Peace. Uh, we're going to be speaking about peace quite a bit today. In fact, the text for today is John chapter 16. Uh, we'll look at that in, in just a moment. I'm going to be a little bit all over the place today, so um, I apologize for that. Kind of hang with me. Hopefully it'll all kind of fit together um, here in a bit. But all of the elements uh, of peace in, in the section of Scripture in John that we're going to look at today, um, the great conclusion is that Jesus says, I give you peace. He gives us the gift of peace. And then he says, take heart because I have overcome the world. Now, if he says that he gives us peace and that we can take part because he's overcome the world, what can we conclude from that? If he's giving us peace, and we can take heart because he's overcome the world, what's at odds with peace? The world. <laughs> what is at odds with peace? The world is at odds with peace. But Jesus says, I give you the gift of peace. Um, you can have that in and through me. Now, last week, Russ um, opened the door to this just a little bit when he was talking about Jesus in the garden and as Jesus was handed over to the soldiers uh, in that garden. Um, there's lots of imagery that we have about being handed over. Um, really, the literal term is that there is an emptying. When you, when you hand yourself over, you have an emptying of yourselves. Uh, we see this a lot in the Gospels. It's in Paul's descriptions, particularly in Philippians chapter 2, where Jesus emptied himself and became nothing, taking on the form of a servant, to empty oneself. There's an element of living into a world of peace and shalom, which I'll define in a moment, a little bit, um, that requires an emptying of ourselves. And I'm doing this very intentionally, this form right here, because there's a part of emptying ourselves, especially as it's described in the scriptures, especially in the Greek and the verb tense, that literally means to egest. <laughs> I don't know if you know what egesting means, but most of us don't want to do it. <laughs> okay, it's, it's a complete empty, whatever is inside of you completely comes out of you. <laughs> uh, another way of doing that might be this way. It goes both ways, but it's a complete emptying. It's a complete giving. In fact, that the Greek has a, a, a reference to that, egesting of giving yourself out. And as one does that, notice what happens to my hand. My hands become completely open in front of me. You see, there's something about our posture even that when we, when we do this, that's a very different posture than this, right? It's a very different posture. When I was growing up, I went to a Catholic church as a kid, 
It was a beautiful community. And uh, here's one of the things I loved about this particular church, Corpus Christi in Oakland, California. Uh, most of the Catholic churches that you walk into, as you walk through those doors, especially if you're a little kid, you see something that, that could absolutely terrify you, which is an emaciated man nailed to a cross, which is the primary fixture in the back of a Catholic church. Um, which, by the way, wasn't always the case. That emaciated Christ on the cross was the first thing you saw, but then there was a second chamber behind where there was an empty cross, which is what we see now in our Protestant churches, the empty cross. But this wasn't true in this church where I grew up. There wasn't this um, crucifix, this Jesus on the cross. As you walked into Corpus Christi, what you saw was this, this beautiful mosaic, and clearly it was Jesus, and, but Jesus not on a cross. It was Jesus actually standing and with his hands like this. And, and the hands were um, probably twice the size. They weren't to scale. They were actually larger sized hands. It was almost comical. So as a kid, you're looking at that going, wow, man, that dude has really big hands. <laughs> right? Um, but as you come to understand what kind of character is being displayed in that visual of Jesus with his hands open to the world, um, is quite, quite beautiful. Um, in fact, when, when we encounter people, think of this in, in the context of a confrontation. When we encounter people, um, what's one of the first things? Put your hands where I can see them. Put your hands where I can see them. When we ingest ourselves, when we open our hands, when we hand ourselves over, we're putting our hands in a place where people can see them. And by people seeing that we are emptied, they can see that we come in peace. Because we're not going to strike back. We're coming emptied and in peace. Okay. So what, is that, what does that bring us? This is the hard part. Because tr truth be told, for me, I don't want to project on all of you. So I'll just put this in the context of me. Um, I'm struggling. And the reason I'm struggling is because of the great depth over the last number of years of how I have come to know Jesus, which has been so awesome and beautiful and peaceful. Um, what I'm struggling with, and, and dare I use the word angry, I think there is some anger in there, are all of the places, all of a sudden, where it's become absolutely clear that we are not living in times of peace. I think for me, it, it started strongly during the last election cycle. Forget about who you like. I don't want to talk about that right now. It, it's not about who you like or who won. It's the process that we all go through every four years or every two years or whatever that creates this kind of hatred, this kind of black or white, this kind of evil versus good kind of mentality. And it just, it goes into everything in our culture. Uh, but, but then I, I, I struggled even more um, a number of months ago with when the whole revelations about Harvey Weinstein came out. And it, uh, it, it struck me at the core. I mean, I, I actually wept. I wept about this with Cairo. I, I wept about this on my own. Like, really? This is, this is, this really is happening. How, how can people be that way to each other? How can we treat each other like that? 
And how can we do that even in the context of the church? How can people in the church treat each other like that? How can we not love our sisters to the point where we are horrible with them and awful with them? What is wrong with us? How did we get here? I struggle, especially um, lately, with violence and seemingly needless death. And I'm struggling because at 54 years old, I'm on that precipice of trying to be at that place where I kind of want to have it all figured out. I kind of want it to all be black and white. I don't want to have to keep taking these books off of the shelf and examining them again and again and again. I want there to be the right answer. And frankly, a lot of that right answer that I grew up with early in my 20s was one that was black and white and dogmatic and doctrinal and, dare I say, conservative. USA first. Let's make America again. What a horrible thing that is. I'll go into that later. So, so today I, I'm, I'm probably taking some risk because I'm sharing some of the angst that I have. And, and it's interesting that I get this topic of peace because it's so timely. So let's go into this a little bit. Here's where I think we, um, we started to get ourselves in trouble culturally. Um, anyone ever heard the, the term manifest destiny? Know what that term means? Okay. Um, manifest destiny is essentially the, uh, the code and the ethos that um, white Europeans set out with to come and discover the new world. And as soon as that new world was discovered, oh my goodness, what a treasure trove of, of things there to, uh, to take and conquer and call their own. It's really um, an understanding that God has predestined white Europeans to own and colonize North America, no matter who they had to kill or displace or steal from in order to do so. And, and what Manifest Destiny does, and, and by the way, we can't avoid this, you guys. We are all... Um, children of this manifest destiny. So as much as we want to say, oh my gosh, that's horrible that they were that way, we are still suffering. We are still impacted by these concepts. Please let's get out of denial that we are not sons and daughters of manifest destiny. We are, especially if you're white. Okay? Um, Russ, I hope everybody comes back next week. You see, manifest destiny morphed into a, uh, a theological concept that I believe many conservative Christians still hold, that the, U that the U.S., the United States, is uniquely blessed by God. Now, here's what happens when, when we get into thinking like that. Now, don't, hear, hear me out here. I'm not suggesting that we are not blessed by God. <laughs> I, I believe we are. I do not believe that we are blessed by God to the exclusion of the rest of the world. That's horrid thinking, and yet that has overcome our mentality. We're essentially desiring is to be preferred over something or someone else. That's what it is. And we need to repent of that. Because who of us really, if we're getting to the soul of who we are, who of us really doesn't want to be preferred? Don't you want to be preferred? Your preference comes at a cost. Let's remember that. 
There's a follow-on phenomenon to manifest destiny. It's a a concept called NIMBY. Anyone ever hear of NIMBY? Okay, NIMBY stands for not in my backyard. Not in my backyard. When, When you give somebody the perception that they have the power to go and acquire something, that gives them... Um, a dominance, a power over something that they then will use in a way uh, that can be even worse going forward. So think of it this way. Um, You find this beautiful place um, to go live. In fact, let's say the government says, here, go out and take however many acres you want and you can land claim that. And you go and you land claim that land. And then somebody else comes and decides to land claim right next to yours. Well, not in my backyard, so, so what, in essence, what you're saying is you've been granted something, but as soon as you have it granted to you, you don't want it granted to anybody else. Why? Because you want to be preferred over somebody else. This flows right out of manifest destiny, you see. Not in my backyard. How does that play out in our day today? Not in my backyard. You just um, moved into a beautiful neighborhood and uh, somebody wants to put a homeless shelter in your backyard. Uh-uh, not in my backyard. Somebody wants to put in a hospital in your backyard, not in my backyard. Somebody wants to put in a, a skate park in your backyard or right next to your property, not in my backyard. Do you see where I'm going with this? Not in my backyard. So we have to ask ourselves, are U.S. American males predominantly uniquely blessed by God to colonize land, control people groups, control gender and genders and to hoard resources? Are they? I don't think so. I can't find that in the Bible. And yet this has impacted absolutely everything. You see, there's only one way to maintain such superiority as I'm talking about. And the only way to maintain that superiority is by the legitimization of force. If you've done any historical studying, if you've done any studying of statecraft, of uh, warcraft, a history of war, if you've gone to military college, you will understand that this concept of legitimization by force, it's the only way typically that sovereigns can prove that they exist or have a legitimacy to exist is by using force. This comes down to our own selves as well. As we think about our own possessions, as we think about our own families, we legitimize things by force. There's only one way to maintain superiority and that is by force. Here's the issue with that, and we see this over history. Wherever and whenever there has been an existence of force, wherever and whenever there has been an existence of force, it has been, it is, and it will be used. We tend to think that if we have a show of force, well, then we'll never have to actually use it. Show me a time in history when that's not been true. You can't. It doesn't exist. So let me do this real quick for a second with you. Um, think, of, think of the word peace. When you think of the word peace, what, throw out some words. What words come to mind when you think of peace? What, what, define it. What comes to mind? What, what are characteristics of peace? Free. Tranquility. Good. Free. Free. Ooh, that's a good one. Wow. Oh, my God. I'm at Newcom, right? <laughs> what else? Community. Community. Great. Flourishing, great. Soft, oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, these are, these are some of the words that we think of when we think of the word peace, when we want the concept of peace to be true. 
What are some words that you uh, assimilate with the word force? Violence. Violence. Aggression. Fear. Yeah. Subjugation. It's great. Yeah, the, these, go ahead. Repression. Yeah. Oppression. <laughs> Both right. <laughs> Good. Good. Um, all of those words you just said around force, were, were those the teachings of Jesus? They're not the ways of Jesus. In fact, one of the things that I think we come down to as Americans is we, is we claim on to this, this word rights. Oh, but I have a right. Jesus doesn't give us any rights. Does he? Show them to me. What right does Jesus give you? Okay, let's, let, it, now, I'm going to say some things now. I don't want you to make any assumptions about how I might feel about, let's say, oh, I don't know, any assumptions. Jesus never gave you the right to own a gun. Did he? Is that like in Matthew 47? Which doesn't exist. I just don't see it in the scriptures. In fact, we're the only country in the world with no constitutional restrictions on gun ownership. The only country in the world. We're one of only three countries in the world where um, you can have outright ownership of a gun. Uh, the other one is Mexico, United States. Forget the third one. Though the U.S. has only 4.4% of the world's population, we own nearly 50% of the world's citizen-owned guns. The highest casualty mass shootings have happened in the last decade. Sandy Hook, Pulse Nightclub in Orlando, the Las Vegas Country Music Festival, and just about a month ago, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. We've had 1,600 mass shootings since Sandy Hook Massacre in 2012. 1,600. Mass shootings means more than one casualty, and in most of those cases, it's more than several. At Sandy Hook in 2012, 20 elementary school children. Is it okay to keep going? I'll leave it at that. You see, forget about, we, we can have long conversations about the American Constitution and, and how we all feel about that. And I think my feelings on that would actually surprise you, given what I'm saying here. Don't jump to that conclusion. I want you to hear the real point here. We claim to follow a peace-loving, peace-giving, peace-calling Christ who told us to love our enemies. We claim to follow a Christ who said, blessed are the peacemakers. We claim to follow a Christ who told us that the very essence of his character is shalom, we claim to follow a Christ who, even when he was about to be taken away and crucified, told Peter to put his sword away. And then Jesus went so far as to heal his enemy's severed ear. 
But we have a God-given right, people say. Show me. What do you mean we have a God-given right? We have some founders that said that we have the inalienable rights. Look at every one of those rights. Ask anybody in this room if they have the inalienable right to all of those things. Not one of you has ever had all of those rights. I guarantee it. And we're the white ones. Where does God give us these rights? And how do those rights line up with what Jesus teaches us? See, I would claim that we are sick with an illness that makes us crave our rights over the right of our kids to survive their childhoods. We crave our rights more than we crave the desire to live in peace with our neighbors. If you live in a neighborhood with a homeowners association, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> See, that makes us crave our rights over the right of people to attend church where mass shootings have happened, or music festivals, or college without the fear of becoming a victim of violence. And it makes us crave our rights to a weapon over the tens of thousands of innocent people to survive this year of 2018. Now, here's, here's an important thing to say. This is the lowest hanging fruit. I'm sharing with you some of the angst that I'm struggling with, right? This is the lowest hanging fruit um, given the events of the last months. But it's just one example it doesn't even touch on other forms of violence that are created through a doctrine like manifest destiny or the prosperity gospel. You see, violence does not have to be physical. Violence doesn't just happen at the end of a gun. Violence can take on all kinds of forms. In fact, you see, if, if we really discern the teachings of Jesus, here's what we'll find. We will find that he came to correct our incorrect thinking on hundreds of things, particularly the nature of God. What did Jesus say to us? You have heard it said, but truly I tell you. What does Jesus say to us? You've had this conception of God, but truly I tell you. We're going to see that in our, today's passage, if we ever get to it. We have Jesus telling us all kinds of things when he came. He is telling that culture of the hundreds of thousands of things that they had wrong. Why did Jesus come? A lot of us would say Jesus came so we could go to heaven. That's not why he came. It's a nice benefit. Jesus came so that we would know him and that through him we would know the Father. And not just like know the name Jesus, but act. Deep connection, epigenosis is a great word to take from that. An understanding, a knowledge, a oneness. That, that we would know who God is and who Jesus is. Now, why did he come to do that? Because we had lots of things wrong 2,000 years ago. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Read the rest of John. We just got a lot of things wrong. And Jesus is giving us a beautiful corrective to the things that we had wrong. Sadly, many of those things that we had wrong have perpetuated to the place where we find ourselves today. So here's what I find fascinating. Communitas right now. Um, we can't keep up with the demand. I get dozens of phone calls virtually every week 
from churches and individuals and folks that are saying, there's got to be another way for us to engage. We've got these ideas, but they're not being met well where we are. Is there some way that we can actually live out what it means to be the body of Christ? And, and we're saying, yes, you can. Why is it so popular right now? I think it's because there are so many people who have called BS on the religious systems that perpetuate the lies that Jesus came to tell us we got wrong 2,000 years ago. And that's a good thing. And yeah, I just said BS in church. <laughs> when Jesus says that he gives us peace, when he gives us shalom, we could do a whole long study on the word shalom and on peace. You probably already have. But, but just to encapsulate that for a moment, when, when shalom is offered, especially in ancient Near Eastern culture, um, even today, when, when that word, when that is offered, it's not, it's not a, an offer of tranquility. Tranquility is great. It's not an offer of tranquility. When you enter into shalom with somebody, you are entering into a covenant with them. That is saying that you will approach them with your hands wide open like this. That's what shalom means. Shalom is a contract that says shalom from now on, we're good. Doesn't mean we're going to agree on everything. We may have some, some hard arguments, but we're good when you offer somebody shalom. When Jesus offers us shalom, he's saying, you are good with me. You are good with God. That's what it means when we offer shalom. So when, when we offer shalom, is there anything about that that is forceful? In the terms that we just used? No, nope. there's nothing about it that, that uses force. But, but here's where we have to struggle, I think. Here's where I think we get confused. Because we can't have it both ways. We can't pick and choose what Jesus is saying and then twist it to try to fix or um, align with our already made up minds that essentially put us in the position of God instead of Jesus. And that's what I find us doing oftentimes. Leslie Newbigin, he calls for what we postmoderns would consider to be a radical shift. It's going to be up on the screen here in a second. It's, it's actually living according to our stated beliefs. Here's what Newbigin wrote. He said, I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. Now, what I find fascinating is that in the late 20th century when he wrote that, that somebody would even have to write that. And second, that that would be radical. <laughs> is that so much to ask? That, that for us to actually be a living example of the gospel would be all of us in life together who would live by what we say we believe. I think that's what Jesus is calling us to. So, now that we have five minutes left, Let's turn, to, um, let's turn to John chapter 16, verses 25 through 33. Uh, I am going to skip a whole bunch of this, um, but let's at least get to uh, the scripture, and, and, and I'll dive into a, a couple of salient points here that I think hit right on with what we're talking about this morning. Um, first of all, before I open the word of God, would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for this place and this time and these people. Thank you for the gift of Jesus and the gift of your word. Uh, may we learn from it. May we be edified in it and through it. Um, may we be challenged by it. 
And God, all those things that we've been talking about today, the things that are of you, may those things be quickly sealed upon our heart. And God, if there's speculation or um, anything else that's just amiss from the character of who you are, may those things be quickly forgotten. Holy Spirit, have your way among us. Amen. John chapter 16, verses 25 through 33. Jesus, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures, but will tell you plainly of the Father. On that day, you will ask in my name. I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Quickly, what's Jesus saying here? See, what Jesus is thinking, we're thinking is, oh, cool, Jesus will go and ask for us for the Father. He'll be the intermediary, yeah? And Jesus is saying, ah, and he will hear you and he will respond to you. Why? Because you have believed that I am he. Talk about that in a moment. I came from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I am leaving the world and I'm going to the Father. His disciples said, yes. Now you are speaking plainly, not in any figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need to have anyone question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Like, really? Because the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each one to his home, and you will leave me alone. A better word there is betrayed or abandoned or the opposite of what it means to abide. A time is coming when you will scatter and betray me and leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I have said this to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you face persecution, but take courage, I have conquered the world. Fascinating what is happening here. Jesus is looking at a group of people who he's saying, and he knows, you're going to leave me alone. You're going to desert me. You say you believe all this stuff, but I'm telling you, in just a few hours, you're going to be scattered and afraid, and I will be all alone to face something pretty awful. And then what does he do? He gives them the greatest gift anyone could possibly ever give anyone. Isn't that cool? Is that what you do? Is that what we do when people come to you and they say, oh, man, I will never leave you? And you know that they do. What, do you give them the greatest gift? It's not very common, is it? It's really beautiful. So here's the scene. This teaching opens right after Judas' departure and the act of betrayal and Jesus' foretelling of Peter's betrayal. And then Jesus says that he's also going away. Um, but there's a beautiful way that this whole thing starts, these discourses. And by the way, I know you're going through John somehow, some way here at Newcom, only how you can do it. Um, I don't know if you're going in reverse. I don't know. I mean, it seems like you started, is it reverse or backwards? Reverse. But, but next week, you're going forward again. Okay. <laughs> Only at Newcom. I love it. Uh, but this whole section in chapter 14, it starts out by Jesus telling all of his disciples. He's starting in this discourse where he's telling them. He's teaching them in these 
three chapters, four chapters, he's teaching them about the Father and the Son and the Spirit and themselves. That's what's happening here. Then in 17, he prays this beautiful prayer that um, you'll go to next week before you start going back again. But this whole section starts with Jesus saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled, despite the fact that he just told them that all of them are going to betray them, betray him. Pretty incredible stuff here. So a, a word, I, I'm, I'm going to pull out some salient points. A word on the loving father. In, in verse 26, I do not say to you that I will ask the father on your behalf, for the father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Now, I, I want us to take this in, in stack it up against some of the thoughts and theories we have come up with to understand the atonement. That's a big word. Um, just so you know, I'm an equal opportunity atonement theorist. Uh, I think they're all great. Uh, I don't think you should take just one and have that be uh, what you hang your hat on. But here's what I would suggest. Sometimes some of our thoughtful doctrines of Christ's sacrificial, reconciling, and interceding work for us toward the Father can give the mistaken impression that Jesus loves us more than God the Father does. Many of them can do that. And, and through this and by this thinking, our, our minds go to that it is up to Jesus to appease an angry God. So Jesus surely loves us more because God's pissed. He is not happy with us. So, oh, Jesus, thank you so much that you stand between us and this horrible, mean, awful God. And Jesus already, in anticipation of this too easy error, he wants immediately to defend his Father's honor. And that is why he says, the Father loves you. The Father loves you. Let that sink in for a minute. Any ones of us who, who maybe um, grew up with a single understanding of the atonement, primarily a penal substitution, where Jesus comes and he appeases this angry God, let that sink in for a second. God loves you. That's powerful. Well, how is that true in the context of what Jesus is saying here? Why do we have such this, this difference between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit? If we look at John, there's a very, very, very important set of words that John uses. Um, and those words in the Greek are the words ego, eimi. Ego, eimi. If you're from Cairo, you know these words. We use them all the time. Ego, eimi. They're very simple Greek words. They simply mean I am in a very specific way. Jesus said earlier in John's gospel, he said, before Abraham was, I am. That's a weird way of speaking, isn't it? When, when he was arrested in the garden, if you remember um, last week, as all of the soldiers came to get him, they, they, they shouted out, who is it you seek? And they said, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am, ego, a me, I am he. And what did all the soldiers do? Look at your text. They dropped to a knee. Why? Ego, me. When Moses um, was, was seeing God in the form of the burning bush, Moses asked God, who is it that I should say to the Israelites that is sending me? And the burning bush says, tell them I am has sent you. Ego, me. I am. The air is tense. It's the present 
um, eternal tense, I am. When Jesus uses that same tense in that way, which nobody ever would have done that. It would have been blasphemous to do so. When Jesus says, ego a me, he is saying, I am God. So who loves you? God loves you. When Jesus says God loves you, what does that include? Jesus and the Spirit. Ego, amen. It's a critically important thing for us to grasp. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So listen, Jesus wants us to know his Father's love, lest we think that Jesus' reconciling work made an only angry with sin God into a reluctantly loving Father. He's not a reluctantly loving Father. He's giving us, he's egesting to us his very self, the essence of his being he releases to us. And he does it in the form of peace. Martin Luther wrote this, which is interesting. He said, no, we are to believe and know that the Father is just as graciously disposed toward us as Christ, who mercifully and willingly dies for us because this is the Father's will and command. Even Luther is saying, no, we are to know that God loves us equally. Incredible stuff. I want that to sink in. So, so what are we to do with all this? One of the things I would suggest that we do, and it was beautifully done um, in the confession time, one of the things we can do is, is admit who we are and where we are, what we struggle with, where we're not perfect. And when we start to do that kind of thing, we're actually starting, hopefully, to erode and wear away this manifest destiny idea that I spoke about. Because if we live under a manifest destiny doctrine, we will inevitably put ourselves in the seat of God. We become our own gods, thinking that we are equipped and empowered by God to have rule over others, and that's not the way of Jesus. But when we admit our shortcomings, we actually bring honor to God, and it puts us in our right place. The gospel writers did this. They gave their own examples. They wrote about themselves not quite making it. They all wrote about the disciples deserting Jesus. This is a pretty strong thing to write about. So admitting our failures is critical, and it's really, really hard for us to do. But if we read this, the Gospels correctly, if we hear from Jesus correctly, we'll see that they constantly put us in our place. So I would encourage us then, as we admit that we are not gods ourselves, that we are not part of a manifest destiny, um, that we have a Savior for a purpose, we bring honor to God. And as we stop trying to put on some kind of false image, as we live into being our authentic selves, which is so beautiful about Newcom, because every single one of you comes through that door and you are your authentic self when you walk in here. 
And that's not true of a lot of places where Sunday mornings are anything but authentic. When we are our authentic selves, we bring honor to God. And I'm preaching to myself on this. I I know for me, I have lots of failures in my wake, um, but I wouldn't trade a single one of them because all of them, once admitted and leaned into, help make me who I am. I've quit too soon, I've hung on too long. I lead well in some ways and I'm really not very good in other ways. I fight really, really hard against passive aggressive behavior every single day. I struggle with significance and where it comes from. I struggle with pride. I struggle with arrogance. I struggle with my own image. I struggle with compulsion. But see, if we admit our failures, then this canvas in which the grace of Christ does its mightiest and most magnificent work just continues to grow. And God can have his way with us. Because when we are in a posture of admission, there's a theme here, right? When you confess, when you admit, when you are your authentic self, what's on the inside comes out. It's not this facade. What's on the inside comes out. And you are forced to be in a position of vulnerability. You are forced to be in a position where your hands are straight out in front of you. You are forced to be in a position where you can receive, and here's the irony, where you can actually give peace to others. We don't think that's the truth, but I'm telling you it's true. It is true. Grace is all-encompassing. In verse 33, this is paraphrased, Jesus, I have said these things to you about your overconfidence and desertions, so that in me alone you may have peace. Jesus is reminding us, you guys are all going to desert me here in just a minute. What's the worst possible thing that can happen in the military? When you're in the military, what's the worst thing that can possibly happen? You can desert somebody. That's the worst thing that can ever happen in the military. And yet Jesus is saying, you're about to do the absolute worst thing a human can do to somebody else. You're about to leave me alone. And here, by the way, is my gift of peace. Isn't that beautiful? Even in the midst of all of our failures. So our final hope rests on the promise of peace. That you may have peace, Jesus says. And that's not just a peace of mind. It's not just a stoic detachment or serenity, but actually the possibility of really existing in peace. And if we exist in peace, then we are firmly and fully confessing our belief in Jesus. And as we confess that belief in Jesus, we can do nothing else but live it. We can't if we are truly, truly allowing Jesus to rule us, to accept his gift of peace, then we can do nothing else despite all of our shortcomings but to live in peace. Jesus says that he has conquered the world and what an ending is that. So I leave us with this. Thank you for for giving me a platform to share some of my angst. Um, I, I would suggest, I think, that if we really are seeking after um, the character of Christ, every single one of us will be wrestling right now. Every single one of If you're not wrestling, you need to be wrestling. 
So thank you for giving me a platform to wrestle a little bit with you. But I'll leave us with this. Jesus says, I have overcome the world, which means that he has had victory over it. Which, by the way, I said I'm an equal opportunity atonement theorist, but I kind of like Christus Victor the best, which is what Jesus says that he did. I have overcome, I have victory over the world. The question for us is, do you believe this? Really? Do you really believe this? And I would challenge us to say that I don't think we do. Certainly not often enough, and certainly not in some of the actions that we see. Do we really live like we truly believe what Jesus is saying? Sometimes we say, but we can't. We can't live like that. Well, why not? What's the worst that can happen? People will say, well, if I live like that, then people would take advantage of me, and ultimately I might die. Uh-huh. Exactly. You just might die which looks a lot like this. So, I'll leave us with Newbigin's quote again. I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. Let's pray. God, help us believe. Jesus, help us to live by it. Lord, help us to manifest the very character of who you are so deeply that we change the world. So that we not only just become agitated with how things are, but um, that we become part of the answer. Lord, help us each examine ourselves to where, in whatever way, as small as it might be, where we have been complicit in the problem, fix us, change us, heal us. Give us a posture of open-handed peace. We thank you for that gift. Help us to be worthy of it in and through and by you and you only. Amen.